welcome everyone to episode 20 of Today in the Scene. I'm Joe with Indie Arcade Wave, and this is my co-host Dylan from Galactic Battleground. Hey, y'all. This week we discuss a game like no other. It's a huge player in the new indie arcade scene. This game has been described as half Joust, half Starcraft, and one giant snail by Polygon. The arcade hit Killer Queen, and with us is the creator Nikita Mikros. Uh, how you doing today, Nikita? Uh, good, good. How's it going, yeah. It's it's going as well as it can. <laughs> Retweet. <laughs> <laughs> so. There's a lot of buzz about the game Killer Queen throughout the arcade community, and it has been for a long time. I know you guys started doing this in, like, 2013, if I'm not wrong. I know that was, like, one of the first showings. Uh, but I want to jump right into who is Nick. I want to know who you are and just tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, okay, so I'm a, I'm a game designer, uh, and I'm I was... I was formally trained as an artist because uh, there was no there was no such thing as game design school when I was uh, when I was growing up. Uh, and but I I started making video games pretty young. Um, I started making games with my brother. I was probably around twelve or thirteen, and this was kind of around the time of space invaders and asteroids and stuff like that so like everything was kind of simple and like we were trying to do stuff on an apple IIe and um that that's kind of how i got started uh and then i went to college and i forgot about video games for a while and i mean i was still playing arcade games but i wasn't i wasn't really playing a lot of home games at that time so yeah. Um, anything? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. I mean, I've been doing this for a, a really long time. I guess uh, I started I started doing this when I was thirty professionally, and I'm fifty three now. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So it's 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 been a while. So with that being said, with all this experience in the field of creating video games. You know that we already know how it started, but what were some of the faded, your favorite video games that you worked on? I think one of my favorites would. I mean, I have a lot because I, I worked on a lot of games, but I think I mean outside of Killer Queen, which that's a whole other kind of thing. But yeah, like maybe like your top three. Or... Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think one of my favorites was a kids game I did called uh, Lego Space Launch, and. And another one, Lego Dino. And like, like doing Lego games was really a lot of fun for me because I grew up playing with Lego and I, I just had like a lot of really strong uh, feelings about it. But the one of the best parts was really that these kids wrote to me because like in the Lego Dino game, you could collect like when you would find things, you would collect stickers like and it was it would give you a PDF and you could print it out and so like we would get these like letters from kids because they couldn't find a certain piece and they needed it for like whatever mural they were working on or what it was really a lot of fun like it was it was it was interesting to to kind of interface with an audience so directly because most of the times when you work on some of these projects it's just like you put it up nobody knows who you are and like nobody cares, and um, 
And it was just really interesting to interface with an audience, even if it were like, even if it was, you know, 10 year olds, uh, which is kind of one of the things I really like about working on Killer Queen is that I, because we're a small community, it's, it's kind of nice to know a lot of the people who are in it. And, and, and that's becoming harder because, you know, there's, there's more and more people all the time. So, yeah. Uh, and then I guess the other one would be, if, if I had to pick the top three, it would be Lego Dino, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, uh atlantis square pantis uh it was like the <laughs> based on the episode with david bowie and with the 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 king of atlantis or whatever yeah and that was yeah. that was really it was it was a really interesting game it had like some really interesting gameplay in it because it was um you would collect these cards and they would be your moves and so, and it was like a tactics game. It, it, it was really, it was, it was kind of not what you'd think a SpongeBob game was. There was a lot of really interesting game design ideas in there. And let's see, what would be number three? I don't know. There was a lot of them, but I did this. Hmm. It might be Pigeon Pinata Pummel, which is another game I did with Josh. Uh, it was like a it was a field game, so it was like played outside. There was like teams, and like in that game, you had up to six teams, and it was bananas. It was just people just running around crazy trying to like break pinatas, and then. Uh, collect all the insides and stuff like that. And that was that was like it, it was a lot of fun, uh, and it that was the first project that me and Josh worked on together. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I guess I didn't even know that you worked on anything like that, but it makes sense because you then created Killer Queen, which started as a field game. So. I wanted to talk about the evolution and development of Killer Queen. It has uh, come a very long way since it started as a field game. Um, can you take me through the journey from running around with foam swords to two massive arcade cabinets with 10 players on them and kind of how the game of Killer Queen works? Yeah. Okay. So so me and Josh actually met at, um, at this company called Game Lab that we were both freelancing at. And uh, Game Lab is kind of like if you know about game development in New York City, um, it was it was kind of like the place to be, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was started by this guy Eric Zimmerman, and we we always joke around that you know if it wasn't for Eric, we none of us would have ever met, which uh, is very very true. And and so. We met, he was working on, he was working on a project for the GameCube, which hadn't come out yet. And in typical game lab fashion, it was like, I think possibly completely unsellable. It was, uh, it was called like Blind Samurai or something. And the screen was completely black. 
you just had to like you had to use the the controller as a as a samurai sword and like just listen to like for audio cues and stuff so that um <laughs> and i was working on this game called arcadia where you play four arcade game four one click at a time arcade games at a time so like the screen would be split into four and then like you know whatever and so we were working on separate projects, but like we met, we started talking and like, we kind of, we kind of figured out that like, you know, we wanted to work on a project together and we heard about, we knew that there was this festival come out and play that, which at that point I think was like maybe two years old, two or three years old. And so we we're like, all right, yeah, let's, let's do a project it'll be cool and easy because we don't have to actually do anything on a computer. All we have to do is actually design the game. So we did that pigeon pinata pommel. And then, um, and then the next year we did another project. And the year after that, we did another project and we were kind of getting a little bit like before we were famous for killer queen, we were actually kind of famous for doing these field games. We we're like winning awards. We were like, we got invited to London, you know, like it was, it was like we were doing this thing and and it wasn't it was definitely a hobby but you know it was related to what we were doing and 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 i felt at the time that it was um it was interesting to do a project like this that you didn't really have to think about production you didn't have to think about like okay i gotta make these art assets i gotta blah blah blah, blah. it was just literally all about design iterating constantly and so the, I guess it was the fourth game that we did together was Killer Queen. And um, so I, I, I think that we were, we were saying like, well, maybe we won't do one this year or something like that. And then I saw this show about African ants that was just insane, right? It was like all like, these ants just destroy everything in their path. And, um, and, you know, they can't speak, but they, they can communicate. Like they're, they're doing these very, very complex coordinated tasks without speaking. So the, the initial idea for killer queen was like, well, what if you were like one of these ants and like you, like people couldn't speak to each other that like, you know, while they were playing this game. And that was kind of the, that was where we started. And then, you know, uh, we tried it out and we were playing it. And then like things kind of evolved. Originally, like you would leave these strings, like you would leave these like, like, like yarn behind you to kind of denote your sense. And like, so it, it was just this whole complicated thing. And then, but the way that we work generally, which drives a lot of people bananas, is that we start off with a core idea and then we iterate and iterate and iterate. By the time you, we get to the end, it doesn't look anything like what we originally started off with. Um, I mean, we, we did this. Yeah. So, so not to get off track, but... Um, so, so we did Killer Queen and we didn't know if it, you know, it was originally eight players, there was foam swords, etc. 
and we didn't really know whether people were going to like it or not. Um, and so come out and play the day on the day of come out and play, we show up and there's like these huge lines waiting for people to play it. And we're like, Oh shit. And so like Amanda did like line management and you know, it was, it was huge. Like we, you know, and, um, and we thought like, okay, this is really interesting. And at that point, mind you, there was no snail. There was, there was, uh, the game was a little bit different than it is today. Was it pretty similar to like what you guys had at Bumble Bash 4 when they were it playing? Is. Game? Bumble Bash 4, we, we do have, we have the idea of the bomb, which is comparable to the snail, okay. uh, where you have to like push a bomb into your enemy's territory. But like in the first version of the game, that, there was no tug of war element in it. It was only two ways to win, really. So, so we were like, you know, we were touring it around. We showed it to come out and play San Francisco. Then, like, they, we got invited um, to to show it at a bunch of places. And and then 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 the next year, you know, we were like, well, you know, that went pretty well. Um, maybe instead of doing another field game this year, maybe we could make a, a video game version of it and we could show it at night games, which is like, it's kind of like installation piece games that are shown at night on big screens. And, you know, and like, we were thinking very, very small here. Like we didn't, we had, we weren't thinking this was sellable. Like there were like, we we figured, yeah, it's it's a really cool game, but like, how are we going to possibly sell this? And um, so we started working on on the video game version, and um, then we got invited to show the field game at this this uh, big games festival in London. They paid for our trip, blah blah blah. blah. Like, yeah, free trip to London, that sounds great. So, but they were really interested in the field game. They they didn't really care about the video game. And we're like, and we just kind of snuck it in. We're like, hey, we know you're having a party in like these old abandoned tunnels. What if we like play the video game? Like, what if we run the video game, you know, whatever? And like, so they were into it, and that was the that was one of the first times that we uh, that was the first time that we really showed uh, the game in a in, like in a to a big audience, and that version of the game was actually twelve players, not ten. And it was when when was this? This must have been, I would say, either two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve, something like that. Okay, and. And we, it was, it was in, it was in these tunnels and we had like a huge screen set up. It was like at least 20 feet wide. And, and there was this, um, there were these seats around this kind of, uh, stage set up and we could not get people off of it. We just could not get people. I mean, and they, they just, 
like it kept breaking down. I kept having to like run over there and fix the USB connections and whatever. And, and like, that was the moment for me. And I think Josh too, that was the moment where we were like, well, this isn't just a good game. This is like, kind of like video game crack. And, uh, and so we were like, okay. Um, so then, you know, we, we were, you know, and all of this was part-time, right? Like we were, we were working this on this, like every Thursday night, that was our schedule. And, and so, you know, we're like, okay, um, you know, and, and I got busy and Josh got busy. He was working on this game that he worked on for a long time called Merryweather. And he was trying to like get it out to his backers. And I was working on this game called the hero trap at the time, which never saw the light of day really. And, um, and then, uh, I was talking to Charles and he was like, um, we were both drunk, you know, Charles Pratt and, and we were both drunk and we had gone to see some famous game designer talk or whatever. And we were hanging out at Apple bar, which was like right around the corner from NYU and we were just getting drunk. And, and, uh, you know, I was, I was explaining to him that like, you know, the, one of the problems of the game is like the hardware keeps breaking down. It's not, like it's it's hard to like you know keep this thing going whatever and i was like well you know if it was like in an arcade cabinet or something like that uh maybe that would be a little bit easier and he just he just laughed and he was like you can't charge for arcade games now and so that was the moment where i was like where like lizard brain nick came out and he was like and I was like, oh, yeah, if if you make a good arcade game, maybe somebody would actually pay for it. And like and so it just kind of escalated from there. And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, um, you know, I, I do the no quarter thing every year. Why don't you guys will give you some money and you can make a cabinet. And I was like, OK, let's do it. And then the next day I remembered our conversation vaguely and uh and i wrote him an email and i said hey man you know we were both very drunk last night you can totally rescind your offer whatever and he was like no 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 let's do it so so then that was 2013 and the show was in may and i remember uh we were trying to get the cabinet together and we were we were like we ordered a bunch of joysticks and buttons and we we're like feeling stuff out and seeing how we felt about things. And we were prototyping like with like cardboard, like what the distances should be and, and, you know, just sketching things out. And, um, and then Josh tells me, uh, well, you know, I'm going to go to Jamaica for a month. And I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, I'm gonna go to Jamaica for for a month with Amanda because she's she's doing this thing, this teaching conference. It was like cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Uh, so this and that was like, and it was yeah, but I'll be back a month before we're supposed to, you know, have it ready. I'm like, dude, we have nothing. 
He's like, yeah, but you know, whatever. Um, so uh, he was very confident. Like he, he was like, yeah, it's going to be no problem. And I was like, he's like, we're just going to get Tony, my brother, to help us. And, and we're going to just bang it out. And I was like, okay. And I mean, true to his word, that's exactly what happened. And we did bang it out. And uh, we got it to the NYU show. And again, it was like, there was like about 600 people there. And it like literally nobody wanted to leave. It was just like, like the party just went on and on and on and on. And, um, and that day, that night, it just so happened that there was a guy uh, named Panos Kutsoyanis, who was like a big arcade collector. And he was there for another conference. He was there for some, some, some other indie game conference or whatever. And, and he had just heard that like this no quarter show was happening. So he figured, okay, I'll just stop by. And he talked to Amanda and he was like, Oh, this game is very interesting. Um, how much are they selling it for? And she's like, I don't know. Let me ask Nick. And I was like, I don't know, $25,000. Uh, cause I had spent like the last three weeks working on it. And I was like, I don't want to sell it. So, um, so he was like, fuck you. That's ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. And then Josh kept talking to him as, as Josh does. And, and he really put it into our heads that like, Hey, this could be a commercial endeavor. Why don't, you know, like, and he had tried to do something with our, he tried to revive arcade games. He had this whole idea about like putting like cocktail tables in sushi bars or something. I don't know. I don't know exactly what his scheme was, but he had tried a little bit and, and he's, he was definitely, he's always been very encouraging. And um, so, so we just kind of got it into our heads and then we're like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, how are we supposed to do it? So we found a location in Concord, uh, California. It was, a it was a laser tag place and we put it in there and, uh, you know, we would get feedback from them. The game was not doing super great. Uh, but it, but we learned a lot while it was there about, um, what was going wrong with it, like as an arcade game and, and, you know, that, and, and like sooner or later, there was like this kind of crowd that had, that started coming there on a regular basis and was playing. And so we got to meet them. Um, and, you know, so that that went on for I guess about good six months. It, the, the cabinet left NYU, went there, and then it went to Indiecade, and then we won Developer's Choice Award on at Indiecade, and then after that, the cab came back to New York, and that's the cab that's that all the New York players uh play on that that's the cab that basically won us bumble bash one two and three um 
even though it's if you talk to charles uh he is he is very unhappy that that is his cab it's very hard to repair and uh it's it's a little it's a little bit of a dinosaur but that, that's just how prototypes go though yeah that's how prototypes go it's also a little bit taller than the other cabs like by about an inch so that that is i don't know maybe that's what makes the new yorkers a little bit more uh i don't know compact <laughs> or something <laughs> Cool. So with all that being said and like all the development you've done, what was like the inspiration for the art style and like how did that art style and direction mature throughout the advancement of the game? Um, so for the art style, I think, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't actually done any production art in a really long time. And like I was, I was more like art directing or, or not Um, like, and I, I always, I had like, when I had my own studio, I had like a bunch of artists working under me. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was doing any art. And, and when, um, when we started the project and we knew that we were going to make it a video game, Josh was like, welcome to Brooklyn. Uh, Josh was like, (laughs) um, you know, I'll I'll do the I'll do the Unity programming and the and the music and you'll do the art and we'll do the game design together. And I was like, okay, that's fair. And um, and I and we didn't really have a ton of time, so a lot of the reason why we decided to go with pixel art was because I. I less pixels, less pixels to paint. And uh, so it it really was about kind of saving time and, um, and trying to make something that looked good without having like a huge team, which like I knew, I knew I, I, I wanted to do the whole thing myself. And I knew that that meant that I wasn't going to be doing a bunch of like 3d work or whatever. And, um, and so, and then I guess the, the art style itself, like, I mean, like the guys started off very different. They looked like the, if you look at like the early drawings of the guys, they're, um, they look more like bugs. They have like six arms like they have two legs and like four four arms and uh and they have numbers on their chests and big antenna and like you know as as we were like kind of workshopping it and like you know like iterating on it or whatever like it became clear that the workers had to get smaller and so they just kept getting smaller and smaller so then like well the numbers the numbers didn't fit, right? But they had these like kind of rugby shirts. So the rugby shirt, the stripes still remained, right? And then the like there was no room for like four arms anymore, so it turned into two arms. And then the big antenna just kept getting smaller and smaller and turned they until they turned into two little ears. So now you have like the bumble bears, right? So um so that was it, it it's 
it, it was kind of like an interesting evolution that way. And then the original soldiers were, they looked more medieval. They had like a big plume coming out of their head. And that version ran for a while. Um, you know, like the first, like before it went to California, that was like, there, there before it went to California, there was only one kind of worker, stripes. And the soldiers looked completely different. They looked like what people call the hot dog soldiers now. And uh, and I, I just, it just kept bugging me. Like it felt like the, the soldiers just felt out of place in this world. Like I didn't, I didn't like them. I didn't like that, like the, they, they didn't look anything like the workers. So I, I, so when I, and it, and it was, it was clear that like, okay, we're going to need, uh, we're going to need different, we're going to need different characters because people are getting confused. Like who is who, you know? So, so I remember I, um, I did the four, I did the idea, I did the concepts for the four guys adding abs and, you know, um, abs and checks and skulls. And, and then I was like, well, okay, if I'm going to make new guys, maybe this would be a good time to redesign the soldiers. And so I did that. And I think I'm really happy with how they turned out. There was one of the original, the super OG players got really upset and quit the game after I redesigned the soldiers. He was that upset. So I'm, I'm going to not mention his name, but he is a, he is a very great, he is, he's an amazing game designer in his own right. But like, I was just like, Whoa, dude, it's, it's, like how why are you so angry i'm just trying to like i'm just trying to make this more clear um so so yeah and i i think that then like the you know the platforms and the sky like it just like the the original map was day map it seemed like kind of a nice world for for these guys to live in and like play their sport or whatever it was uh and yeah that's pretty much it that's really cool the way that it evolved and changed over time and you mentioned a couple stories already um but i want to talk about how killer queen has a really dedicated community um Mm -hmm. all across the country which we've talked about there's tournaments and everything all over the place and i remember i was chatting with you uh I don't even know, like last March down in Florida for a regional. And that was really cool. Yeah, it was, in February. It was at Queens Gone Wild. Right, right. So um, I'm sure that a lot of people that are listening to this that are Killer Queen players have heard a lot of these stories from you before. But I want to hear a story from a convention or a tournament or even during development that still makes you laugh to this day that you probably haven't shared with the community yet. Oh, Jesus. Hmm. Like a behind the scenes kind of thing. Yeah, kind of something that like I don't know, just just caught your eye and you still kind of laugh about. Because I mean, you've been doing this for about, what eight years now with Killer Queen. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many, and it's just like people just have like. I think it was really 
getting the first bumble bash off the ground like that like we had no clue what the hell we were doing and like we were promised like that we were going to have four cabs and then four became three and then three became two and then two became one and like like we're like what and then every i just remember me and josh are on the plane we have and all we have is like chat like wi-fi chat or whatever and we're we're coordinating how to get a second cab to Bumble Bash. And there was this guy, and I, his name eludes me right now. And he was like, I'll tell you what. I I will drive it from, I think it was up down Kansas City. Maybe. I don't remember where it came from. Oh, I think it was from Kansas City. And I'll, I'll drive, I'll drive a cab or maybe it was from, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to lie. I, I don't know. I don't know where it came from, but I remember it came from far away and he volunteered to rent a truck and drive it all the way to Bumble Bash. Where was Bumble Bash that year? What's that? Where was Bumble Bash that year? It was in Austin, Texas. Okay. And we were sharing the venue with big bucks, uh, big bucks uh world championship and i'm actually made a lot of friends that were big buck players because of because of that tournament i and um and it just like as far as like community like i was just like wow somebody somebody did that like somebody like actually drove like got a truck drove it like halfway across the country so that our little championship can happen or whatever. And, you know, it was just really kind of eye-opening that, like, that could even happen. Yeah, that shows a lot of dedication from an individual to drive. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, got to be yeah. at least 12-plus hours. Yeah. I, well, I think it was, like, probably, a, like, an eight-hour drive. I think for him it was about an eight-hour drive. But still, that's a lot of time, you know? And... um but you know, like over the years, I've seen so so many small gestures from people helping other people in the community, and I I I mean, there's just too many to recount. But like, it's the little things, you know. It's like the little, like. I even see it online, you know, like people saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm really having a hard time today or whatever. And people, people will jump in and say, and try to like help people out or whatever. And I, I, I've never been part of a community this big that actually can show that much empathy towards one another, you know, especially around a competitive game. I think, I think it's really, I don't know. For me, it, it, it's humbling. You know, it is humbling. As far as like a particular story, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to rack my brain around like what one particular story would be. Maybe, well, I don't know. Do you know what an alley shot is? No idea. No idea. 
apparently this was this was a San Francisco thing that you basically after the bar is closed and you you know whatever I don't know, I'm not even gonna tell this story forget this story um but if you, if you want to know what an alley shot is uh ask dot from from San Francisco he'll tell you um I think yeah I, I don't know I I can't I, I'm not, I know that there's a lot of things that we did design wise that encouraged people to rub shoulders, to like, to, to encourage people to become friends. And, and I think that a lot of that people don't, necessarily understand how much of that was like built into the design of the thing but all given all of that it still has like far exceeded whatever expectations that i had of like building a community around the game like i never i never imagined that we would have what we have and it's a blessing so i I mean i think that's all i'm going to say about that so shout out to the community on that one Oh, for sure. For sure. So as you talked about that story from Bumble Bash 1, as someone who that shows off games like Galactic Battleground, what are some of the best conventions that you have attended here in the U.S. or internationally? Uh, I think Bit Summit in Kyoto is kind of amazing. That's actually uh, cool you mentioned that because we, we spoke with Rob about that a little bit from Armed and Gelatinous. And I, I'm, I'm going to let you tell the story because that's really a cool story. Uh, I mean, it's just you're, you're thousands of miles away from home in a completely bizarre place, right? Like you don't know the language. It's weird. Everything's weird, you know? Um, a lot of strange customs and, you know, a lot of giving the cards and the, you know, whatever, like just giving a, a game magazine interview in Japan is like, like I had a translator and it, it was, you know, it, it was, it was, everything was kind of like topsy turvy, but what was really amazing about it was meeting other developers and, uh, and just kind of, bonding with them in a way that like you just aren't expecting and and i think a lot of that happens at night like after the show is over after all the games have been shut down and everybody just goes down to the river and starts drinking beer and and whatever and just hanging out and telling stories and um and you know just sharing their their lives as game developers with each other and i think that that's uh for me that that was really fun and and we got really drunk and we were in a part of the river we were not supposed to be and uh you know maybe we were a little bit louder than we should and the cops came and then we're like, and like, I mean, being American, I was like, oh shit, you know, 
now we're now we're now we're gonna get busted or whatever right or like the cops are just gonna be assholes and they were super nice they just were like hey guys you guys need to move just a little bit about you know 300 three or 400 feet because you're next to the blah 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 and it was just totally civil like and and like totally mellow and it just kind of went with the whole evening everything just felt really magical like japan is kind of magical and and i, I and i ate one of the best burgers i've ever eaten in my life in japan about a block away from the convention center by this guy who's a total americanophile and like he's just totally into like everything american so he opened a hamburger place which i, I thought was kind of funny um so yeah that that's my that's my uh convention story i think i, I think second place would probably be indicate that's which, amazing yeah yeah I, that sounds like a really cool experience it, it was it was, was indicate like oh indicate is complete chaos it's just totally it's kind of like magfest but on a smaller scale in that way have you have you guys ever been to Magfest? No, we, no, but we did just speak with Mark and them about it. Yeah, yeah. So like Magfest is is also total chaos and but also a lot of fun, right? And I think that like um, the but Indicade, I mean it it's kind of cool because I get to see all my old friends, you know, like and I get to catch up with like what people are working on and uh so like from a from a from a game developer standpoint like i really like indicate because if you go to like gdc it's very corporate and like a lot of these parties for like bros or whatever i don't know you know who goes to these parties and like but indicate is a lot more chill um alan yeah I remember one time we were indicated, it was me, Josh, and Alan, and we met these guys, and they were like, oh, you should come to this party. And we're like, what? And, like, we went to the party, and, like, Alan was really afraid. Like, it was, like, in some hotel room or whatever. And he, I, I think he thought that, like, we were either going to get killed or he was going to have to cheat on his girlfriend or something. And I was like, dude, relax. And we get there and it's like a bunch of these super old guys telling like all their old war stories. And they, the, the refreshments were like Coca-Cola and they had like goldfish in a Tupperware out. And I was just like, all right, we're out of here. Um, but most of the time at Indiecade, it's, it's kind of like the same thing as Bit Summit, but American, you know, like just like what, People who genuinely like make, like games and like making games and like to talk about making games and just hanging out and um, appreciating each other's work. And I think that that's really kind of nice. Yeah, that sounds really nice to like both those conventions sound awesome. And they're definitely ones that I would love to attend. I know uh, we'd like to make it out to to new york to for sure go to magfest or that's in maryland right that's in maryland actually yeah. and that's yeah. at the 
it's at this hotel called the Gaylord and uh, it's immense. I think it's something like 40 or 40,000 people. Like that's crazy. Yeah. It's the, the hotel is so big. It's kind of in a shoehorn. It's kind of a, in a horseshoe shape. And in the middle is this giant courtyard. The whole thing, the whole courtyard is like in a, in a glass bubble. And then there's buildings inside the courtyard. It's that massive. It's crazy. And the, and one of the really cool things about it is the arcade. Like that's my favorite part about Magfest is like the arcade is open all night. So you can like just roll in at four or five in the morning and just like, just start banging on whatever, which is really, um, it's kind of nice. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of shenanigans that happen at Magfest, especially right. if your Bosch is around. <laughs> well, I know uh, Mark was talking about how that's just open all night and how cool that is. Um, I'm really curious about your cabinets and how you got them out. So we, we heard the story about the first cabinet, the first prototype and everything. But your cabinets sell for 15000 for both cabinets, which when you break it down, it makes sense because they are massive and the screens are massive and it's 10 players. So it all makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and you're in 80 locations nationwide or even over 80 locations. I want to know how you got that off the ground and how did you get your first couple cabinets out on location? Um, well, in the beginning, it was very, very hard. Um, we, you know, like arcade owners, especially like arcade bar owners are very concerned with space. They're usually like, it's not like family entertainment centers in the suburbs where they have like tons and tons of space. So they're like, oh yeah let's put one of these ticket machines that's like 15 feet tall or whatever like they're they're very cramped for space and um and i remember like we would have these conversations with people uh like i was trying to get it the game into ground control i had a friend who had a friend who was one of the owners of ground control and like, I just remember having all these conversations and I'm like, you don't understand. This isn't like other games, blah, 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 blah. We think like given like your, your audience, like it should do really well, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I would have to move like three Pac-Man and a, you know, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You just move them. Um, so like we had a lot of these conversations. I think the big the 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 big thing that I think really kind of launched us was Logan Arcade. And I think that like I really um when we when we first were starting to think about like selling them, uh and we had sold like probably I think we had sold about a dozen at this point. And maybe maybe less, maybe less. But like mostly to private people or whatever. And um, and we had shown it a lot. And Eugene Jarvis, who owns Raw Thrills, who, um, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he is kind of one of my personal heroes. 
he um, he designed uh, Robotron and Defender and Smash TV and then later Cruisin' USA and a bunch of games. And yeah, we uh, we actually got to meet him um, in Milwaukee at MGC. He came and played Galactic Battleground with us for like an hour. Oh, really? Yeah, he's yeah. an amazing guy. He's, he's super he's, cool. You know, and he's much older than me and like totally with it and like i don't know i i I adore him you know and and he will tell you the weirdest most fucked up shit you've ever heard uh if you just hang around long enough um but he started following us like we he started kind of following us and we started following him we went to this talk he did at gdc about uh making robotron and like he talked a lot about like how Robotron was coded and stuff like that. I, I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, and we were showing the game in the lobby at GDC, at, like in this retro arcade, whatever thing. And, uh, and he came around, he played it. And like, he was like, he was kind of dropping our name a little bit. Like when he would go give talks places and like, people would be like, dude, Eugene Jarvis just mentioned you in a talk and we're like, huh? Okay. And so, so we started going, so we were a little bit like, okay, why don't we talk to Eugene? And, um, and so he was very generous. Uh, we're like, Hey, we, we would love to, uh, fly down to Chicago and meet with you and, you know, just, see if see if we can do business or at the very least you know maybe pick your brain or whatever and like so we went and we met him we had lunch and then um and then we went back to his office and he has this like literally one of the biggest meeting room tables i've ever seen and we we sit in there and we get like a total brain dump like six hours was just like like he just he just laid it out and uh and he talked you know we we talked a a lot about like the kind of stuff that we were going through and like you know what his experiences were and you know and it was like we really got to know him in that in that moment and I, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful because at the end of that conversation, he was like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you guys. Uh, I'm going to, there's this place that I like to go downtown in, in Logan square called Logan arcade. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to call the guy who owns it, Zespi, and I'm going to tell him to give you guys a shot and like, so that you could put it on test there. And like, depending on how it does, maybe we can do business and, or something like that, something to that effect. So, so, you know, you know, you know, James Espy, you know, has a lot of respect for Eugene and like, you know, so we went down with him there, we met with him and he was like, yeah, this sounds cool. Let's, uh, let's do it. You know, we told him about the game. We told him about, you know, whatever. And um, 
And it was James, it was this guy, James Barron, who, who like for all the early KQ players, especially around Chicago, I mean, they, you know, James Barron was kind of a, like an amazing guy. He like, you know, he was, he was, he was the tech there and he would fix all the machines and he, he really got the game off the ground. He, um, he would like basically show people how to play and he would like put money in the machine and like, you know, he really got it off the ground. And, and in one month they were running tournaments, like literally. And that none of that would have happened if, if Zespi, the owner and James Barron, like had not done like a hard commit to this. So I really feel like, you know, well, I mean, we'll always, I mean, you know, I, I think they're both amazing They're And, and James Barron actually now runs Emporium at San Francisco. I mean, until they close because of COVID, but I'm sure they'll reopen afterwards or hopefully, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but, and that like, and we just kind of started building on that. Right. And, and, and so like when it came to like ground control, we were, we got invited by um, uh, by this uh, this conference uh, to to like to bring the game to Portland, and um, and we needed to store it someplace. So we're like, hey, ground control, why don't you just take the game? For a month like you don't have to hold on to it just take the game for a month you can even put it in storage but you know if you want put it on the floor and just see how it does and so they took it after the show um which the show was xoxo and um and like they were like okay okay i guess okay i guess we can take it for a month but you have to have it out of here you know after a month and so as you know, like then Portland became our second hub, right? Like first Chicago, then it was Portland. And now by around before, before Portland, like New York had gotten its cab back. So like now we had the three cities, right? We had Portland, Chicago, and New York. And, um, and then the final part of what pushed this over the edge was, Kickstarter had a machine and they had come to a tournament, like a New York tournament. And, and like, they just beat everybody. They like, they won first place. They easily, you know, whatever. And like, so the whole New York community was like, well, this can't stand. And so when, um, you know, when Kickstarter decided that they were going to have a tournament, like it was an open invitation and uh, all the New York teams came out, but more importantly, a team from Chicago came out and um, Dre was on that team. Josh Eklo was on that team. Um, I think Helen was on that team. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And um was on that team uh what's his name the guy would take off his shirt all the time he doesn't play anymore uh i'm blanking on his name i'm sorry anyway um and i think that was the moment 
when people were like, oh, we can travel. So, and, and, and like the, the community started getting bigger and then it just became easier to sell the machines, right? Like then the arcade owners start, like the arcade owners started thinking it was, it was becoming an easier sale. And now it's like, if you're opening a new arcade bar, then mostly those guys like usually will call us and be like, okay, um, you know, we want to buy one or whatever. Uh, but in the beginning it was really, really rough sailing. It was a really hard sell. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely understand that with Galactic Battleground. It is tough to, to get that initial community rolling and you guys did an amazing job of getting it going. Uh, from the start with the field game and then moving into uh, going to, what was it called? No quarters. Uh, yeah. But before that, you know, when it was in Concord, it wasn't doing well. And when we took it to the Wisconsin Dells, it was definitely not doing well. There was a long time that we were figuring it out. So take heart, you know, like for all you like people who are making arcade games now and like having a hard time getting it placed, I think, it just takes a really long time. Right. Where where in the Dells were you guys? We were in the Kalahari. The Kalahari. And, and the do you know that thing? I do, I yeah. I, I mean we're like we're from Minnesota, so yeah. we've been we've been over there so many times. We actually spent a night there. Uh and uh and yeah, I think the game was making like 50 bucks a week or something it was just some ridiculous and it was mostly the employees who were playing it so it was it was it was a tough road believe me it wasn't it wasn't like we had we had a bunch of like enthusiasts right like people uh like we had sold like a few private cabs like google kickstarter like these kind of places where People just played the game at some convention, loved it, whatever, and then they bought it. But like getting it into arcades was so hard in the beginning. Got it. Well, I think that wraps it up for what we wanted to ask you. Um, I'm sure we could go on for hours from here. Um, There's a lot that we would want to ask you, Uh, but we'll wrap it up and... To wrap it up, I want you to shout out all your guys' social media so that anybody that's listening will be able to find you easily. Okay. So on Instagram, we are Killer Queen Arcade. On Facebook, we are also Killer Queen Arcade. On on Twitter, we're Killer Queen Game. Uh, And my personal... Instagram is nmikros, as well as my Twitter. And then, you know, Nikita Mikros on Facebook. But I probably almost everybody listening to this already is my friend. So, uh, and that's that's it. Gotcha. And then also the website. So if anybody wants to check them out, go ahead and just Google Killer Queen Arcade. You'll come up to the website and it'll direct you there, especially if you want to buy a cabinet. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on again. It was really uh, fun. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, there will definitely be another episode of this in the future. Um, maybe jumping into Bumble Bear or Killer Queen Black, or I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Oh yeah, there's a ton. There's a ton. There's a there's. I mean, the his, sorry sorry if the history lesson was a little bit long, but <laughs> no, we liked it. We wanted to hear that. So if you guys like what we're doing here at Indie Arcade Wave, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, whether you're listening to a podcast or on YouTube. 
Um, and until next time, peace. Peace out.